get started in honor of those who have uh, braved it through the storm here and, and uh, made it here in a reasonable time. So uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you now knowing that you are the God of all creation and you desire that we would know you and that we would reveal you to the entire creation. We thank you, Lord, for creating us in your image, and we rejoice that you have recreated us in Christ. And we ask now as we open your word that you would make this plain to us, not only the great inheritance that we have, but the blessing that we have of proclaiming your glory and exemplifying it in creation. So be with us, we pray this morning. Keep us from error. Uh, give us clear minds to understand your word and give us a clear sense of the glorious God who has called us out of darkness into light. We thank you now for this time and lift up these prayers in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, this morning's Sunday school class was prompted by a uh, discussion that we had uh, in one of our session meetings where we're working through a book. It's uh, a compendium of articles from Reformed writers uh, called Give Praise to God. And in this book, we're taking a look at worship and how we as God's people can best worship him in spirit and in truth. And one of the articles that we ran across uh, as we were working through this, working through uh, the formal aspects of worship, took a look at how worship is meant to be part of the life of the Christian in general. And there was an article by uh, William Edgar entitled, Worship in All of Life. And uh, in, in this particular article, he takes a look at uh, a, a study that's driven primarily from the application section of Romans and looks at how that could be a, a remedy for some of the pathologies that we might see in Christian life today, but also as a catalyst for giving us a, a vibrant relationship with God that can then work its way out in our lives and ultimately be light and salt to the uh, rest of uh, those who are around us. So what, the way that he starts things off is you know, taking a sort of a look at um, America today and where things stand. And you know, when you take a look at the arts and sciences and culture, morality, entertainment, politics, you don't see much of a Christian influence in all of that. You don't see a profound sense that uh, Christian thought is permeating those areas and having an impact on it in ways that maybe it may have happened in the past. We tend to glorify the past sometimes, and, and uh, when we look at things historically, we sometimes overestimate maybe the, the cultural impact that previous times have had. But when you look at many of the great composers, for example, um, you look at Bach and, and 
what his background was and how he was driving new forms of music, for example, uh, so that the, the music of the church was not copying the music of the culture, but was actually driving the music of the culture. And you, you see the same sort of thing with the Messiah. You see the same thing in science. Today, things are a bit different. They're being driven by uh, different ideas and, and ideologies. And one of the things that he points out in, in his article is two main problems that tend to come out of the American church. Uh, one of them being that uh, we kind of have this view that money is the enabling force of ministry. And the second one is a, kind of a worldwide problem, but it, it's significantly more prevalent, I think, in America. And that's uh, an impatience with the slow pace of change. And then he goes on to take a look at some of the, the ways that Christianity has attempted to uh, work its way into the culture and how our impatience as a culture has, uh, has influenced us. And so he, he brings up a couple of, uh, he brings up three major strategies, there are others as well, that probably are uh, something that all of us here would consider as, a, as mistaken strategies. The, the first one is sort of, it was what he refers to as rationalized aggression. And this is everything from sort of, you know, an ad hominem snarkiness that we might have that is less like Christian writing and maybe more like something that you'd hear on The Late Show, all the way out to, you know, violence against abortion clinics where people have bombed them. And we've even had uh, a guy who was, a, who was formally trained in the Presbyterian Church who actually committed murder, uh, killing a doctor and his bodyguard. So this is clearly, I think, something that we would all agree is a mistaken way to, to, to react to the problems of the culture. Um, there's also been an attempt to be actively engaged politically. Uh, and some of us who've been around here long enough remember the moral majority and the, the promise that the moral majority thought that there was in culture because there was this belief that the, that the conservative viewpoint that Christians have is one that most Americans share. And as, as sort of a backlash to that, there's this idea of withdrawal, of practicing holiness and establishing activities in, in, in establishing activities and organizations of excellence that are apart from the culture. And the, the third thing, the third um, problematic way of, of, of approaching culture and life, he referred to as evangelism only, as this idea that evangelism is the highest goal of our lives as Christians. And while we do agree that evangelism is important, uh, it's not just evangelism that our lives are all about. And I think that the Apostle Paul uh, in Romans chapter 12 addresses these misconceptions and others, and we'll, we'll be taking a look at that uh, shortly. Uh, a super brief introduction of the first 11 chapters uh, could go something like this, that the Apostle Paul uh, presents man's depravity, uh, 
a righteousness apart from the law. Uh, in addition to that, God's grace and, and how through justification and sanctification, uh, he works out that grace in the, in the lives of his people. And even God's faithfulness uh, towards those who persist in unbelief, uh, his chosen people, in which he discusses in verses 9 through 11. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at the end of Romans chapter 11, and we'll move through uh, chapter 13. I'm going to read through that, and then we're going to sort of touch on some of the main points that the Apostle Paul addresses in this application section, and see what that has to say about life for us as his people. So uh, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33, and this is that passage that many are probably familiar with without even turning to it, the, the passage in Romans where after the Apostle Paul has laid out this uh, enormous uh, corpus of theology where he looks to God, sees him as all glorious, and then transitions into application. So I'll, I'll read through this first, and then um, we'll, we'll get on with uh, our discussion of uh, what it means to worship in all of life. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to you now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. A long passage, and uh, it's certainly got a lot for us to consider. Yes? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so, we, we will touch on a lot of what it says, though, and I think that the continuity of the passage really does speak 
quite powerfully when it's read in its entirety. I would have read through the end of the book, but then we would have been at the end of the hour. <laughs> so the beginning of chapter 12 follows after that wonderful doxology. And he begins chapter 12 in kind of an interesting way. Uh, what's significant in the apostles' transition to application in verses 1 and 2 here? What do you see is, what's significant and kind of jumps out at you? What is significant in this transition to application here in verses 1 and 2? Yeah. Yeah, he's, 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 taking this language of sacrifice here. Right? And he says living sacrifice. And that has some serious implications if you look at the Old Testament language because he clearly is looking at the Old Testament language here in this passage. And so what all is wrapped up in in the idea of sacrifice. Death. Yep. So this is, this is the movement from the, the shadows that pointed forward to the coming of Christ to what Christ actually did and how we as Christ's followers then are commanded as our act of worship in a sense to do what he did. There's this, so there's this sacrificial nature. Matthew. Mm -hmm. idea that there is no righteousness of our own uh, yep. through the law or apart from the law. There's nothing we can 
Mm-hmm. Yes, and and notice how that that response works its way out. He uses he uses a couple of phrases here. He says, "Do not be conformed, but be transformed." And the things that he looks at when he talks about first being conformed and then being transformed, uh, how do, how does that provide a, a powerful segue into the rest of of what we read here? There's that there's the transforming aspect that his grace has on us, and he he starts off. Notice how notice the way that he starts off. He says, "Do not be conformed, but be transformed." So, what is it? What is the challenge here that's before the Romans? That's sort of implicit in that comment uh, when he says, "Do not be conformed to this world." Jay. Yeah, and and it's, it, it's like the fish in water, right? The fish doesn't look at water as this stuff. It's just what it's in. And, and we as Americans are in this culture. And as we look at it, we don't have to embrace everything about it, even those aspects that may have been foundational to this country becoming a nation. We, we don't have to be so tied to everything that is inherent and implicit in where we are because there's something else that we're using when we examine that. It's outside of that. And so when we look at the world, when we look at everything in it, there's this notion here that there's a metric that you use and it's something that's outside the world, and it's something that will 
give you the wherewithal to be able to judge the world. So there, there's, but let's take just one, one more quick look at this idea of being conformed to the world. What is that saying about, oh, yes, David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's, uh, I, and I think that that's actually c consistent with the original language here. The original language is, uh, when they talk about conforming, it's, it's as though, it's, it's as though we're being commanded not to be reshaped in the image of the world, not to adopt the shape of the image, but to be transformed. And that takes us back to the, the idea that we were originally designed for something other than what the world would have us be if we were conformed to it. Phil, were you getting ready to, to say something? Mm -hmm. But don't we need a, a transformation to get away from that? To follow the gift and calling that God has irrevocable. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that and the irrevocable nature actually has a lot to say about the, the way that we move forward, the way that we look at the world, and, and ultimately the way that, that we interact with it. So moving beyond the, the first couple of verses here, uh, as, we look at as we take a look at verses 3 through 8, uh, what do you notice about the imperatives in verses 3 through 8? There's a, there's a, oh. Yeah, there's actually a, a, a substantial subtext here about what is important, and the individual is not. And th there are a couple of sort of uh, misconceptions that have been corrected by the Apostle Paul in a couple of other places. Matthew, you look like you're... No, oh, okay. Oh, okay. There are a couple of uh, misconceptions that the Apostle Paul is, is dealing with in here uh, with this idea of the individual not being 
substantively important? And what might that be? Yeah, and, and we, we talked about that, or our pastor did, as he's uh, taking us through Corinthians, about the, the different parts of the body and their roles, and that each one has a role, and that there is no role that is too great, and there's no role that's too small. What are, what's, aside from the, the obvious problem of pride, that you see when some roles are elevated above others. What's, what's the flip side of that when, when someone looks at their role as, as part of, of uh, the fabric of God's kingdom and doesn't have a proper view of its significance for God? In other words, saying, oh, I, I can only do this. What's it, Rob? Because there is this distribution. Yes, uh, Ronnie? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, there's that there's that phrase in, in First Corinthians, I think it's first first Corinthians chapter four where it says, uh, you know, what do you have that you weren't given? Right? What do you have that you weren't given? But on, on the other side, the, the, the individuals though who might see them who might see their their role as not significant. Yep, Ronnie. Alicia, yep. Yeah. And yeah, but it, it it and these things sort of point to what one theologian referred to as a sense of false pride. It's looking out there at what God hasn't done for you and standing in judgment over him as if to say, if I were God, I would have given me this ability. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an interesting sort of turnaround, but it's doing the same thing as, as the proud person. It's just doing it a different way.
Any other thoughts before we move on? Yeah. Yeah, and and you have a different translation, right? What how does how does uh the King James translate that phrase? Reasonable. And there there's a, there's actually a reason behind the King James translating it that way and that's that that the, the Greek word has this aspect of reason as it, as, it, as it applies to the spiritual. So it's, it's one of those complicated words to translate that, it, like if you look at um, the authorized version, for example, of the Bible, uses uh, reasonable as opposed to spiritual. So the, the idea behind all of this is that it, it makes sense it's not like you're waiting for some spiritual thing to inform you, but, but God is, is through your mind uh, informing you about what is reasonable as a result of all that he has done for you. So, now, taking a look at, uh, at verse 9 here, um, and this this particular section how is the apostle transitioning as he's talking about uh, what signifies you know, the life of a christian ronnie Yes, he, he's, introducing, he's introducing the things that he's then calling us to do based on a genuine love. And so these are some actions that you would expect to see from genuine love. But genuine love itself, what, what does genuine love look like? Yeah, he's, he's, he's certainly doing that with the actions here. Uh, are, are there any passages of Scripture that, that come to mind? <laughs> I, guess I, I guess I'm being uh, a little obvious. Uh, let's, let's, let's turn briefly to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. <laughs> Does, uh, would somebody uh, like to read that for us? Uh, 
Yes. Okay. After we look at a passage like that, after we hear a passage like that read, and then you come back and take a look at, at Romans chapter 12, and you look, look at verses 9 through 13, and it speaks of genuine love, this notion of, of abhorring evil, for example. And you know, what, does, what does that mean for a Christian today when, when you abhor evil? Uh, and what are the, what are the implications you know, getting back to the, the issue that we spoke of initially, which is worship in all of life. If, if our bodies are living sacrifices and we look at something like abhorring evil, uh, what sort of things should we abhor that, that we see maybe going on all around us? And... I'm going to take a step back here, and I'm going to I'm going to sort of cut to the chase because there's a there's an issue that is a lot nearer and dearer to the hearts of our brothers and sisters worshiping in Dorchester about evil in the world than might be as relevant to us today uh, here, us as a primarily uh, non-African American congregation. But for those who are African-American and who have dealt with uh, issues of injustice, um, they are a lot more sensitive to those issues than we are. But should we be sensitive to them as well? I think in some ways it might be. <laughs> I'm saying this is one of those things that might not be such a good thing. This might be an area for us as a church to be a bit more introspective. If we have uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who, are, who have either experienced Racism, some of it even within the church. We just we just had uh, one of one of the the pillars of the PCA who passed away, but he had some writings that were uh, less than consistent with the 
the notions of ethnic redemptive unity that we see in Revelation. Uh, and as we look at things like what God calls us to and how every tribe and tongue and nation is going to be standing before him, uh, I think we should have a concern for injustices that have uh, been rained upon others. Because if we leave, let, let, let's just use that as sort of a, a microcosm into the, the world and, and how we can look at it. Uh, I, think that most of, I, I think that most of us would agree that there is a sensitivity to racial issues now. But how does everybody in here think that the world is doing in terms of the strategies that they're using to try to remedy the situation? Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a, you know, if you're a pop culture person, you might remember the phrase that, you know, the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to get the world to think that he didn't exist. But there's actually a greater trick, and that is uh, to, to get the world to think that they can use his methods to defeat him. And I think that what we're seeing right now in the culture, due to a lack of Christian leadership, just might be the fact that we don't have Christians who are worshiping in all of life and looking out there with a concern for the least of these. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, to, ma to make this an issue maybe that, that should be a cornerstone for us, but more maybe an issue that we ought to consider because if you've, if you've ever, uh, we, we had a pastor, uh, it's actually Kathy DeRose pastor, who came up and spoke to us because he is, he's one of the uh, leaders in the PCA right now for dealing with the issue of, he doesn't call it rec racial reconciliation because he, he thinks that that's too worldly of an idea. And he's an African-American guy, but he speaks of ethnic redemptive unity, that, that if truly every tribe and tongue and nation is going to come before God, then we should be experiencing aspects of that in the already. We shouldn't be saving all of that for the not yet, for when we're before God. And that by falling behind in, in the world and allowing the, the world to take the lead in this, that there's a, there's a problem there with the church, that the church is not fulfilling the role that it, it has fulfilled throughout history in so many other areas of justice. Yep, Rob? Well, I, I think that, that 
So let's, let's, let's take that a little bit further. We're, we're probably not going to get much further than uh, through verse through uh, the through verse 13 here, really. Um, but let's take a look at that. So as we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, what does that do to all of us? We ourselves, as we, fi as we fix our eyes on the perfect, on the beautiful, on the, the righteous. Yeah. Yep. And right. And it, oh, Bill, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. 
yeah, there should, there should be this, this sense of unity that we have because we're all looking to Christ. Scott, were you going to say something? Yeah. Um, no, I Yeah, and and as we look at Christ and we look at we see God through Him, and and the, the our our lenses are are capable of grasping and just an inkling of His righteousness. We see a, a certain leveling of of the playing field, no matter how different we are. That we're all far different. Our differences among one another uh, are almost imperceptible compared to the differences between us and God. And that in and of itself is, is something to give unity to us all. Matthew, you were uh, getting ready to say something?
And implicit in that answer is a notion that is contrary, I think, to the way the world is. Because the world kind of wants to come up with a way of doing something and then just do it. And what God has to say is, no, this, this is hard stuff. You, you have to figure this stuff out, and I will give you my word, and I'll give you my Holy Spirit. But you've got to do some work here. This is not just something where you let go, and I put my spirit in you, and you just do the right thing. It's, it's, a, it's a messy world that we live in. And, and part of that worship is rolling up our sleeves and, and working out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in us. So th- that's where the fear and trembling piece comes in. He, he didn't say it was going to be easy. And the, the things that make our world hard are very different than the things that make the voice of the martyrs world hard, right? But we even have those in our world. And there was a, there was a really great quote um, that one, I, w- I wish I could remember who it was who said it, but he was, he was talking about how adversity removes the ambiguity from our prayers. Like you, when you're praying and think everything's going really well and you're just trying to figure out what to pray for, it's like, you know, you know you, sometimes we struggle. But boy, when there's adversity in front of us, we know what to pray for. It's right there. And God makes it crystal clear that we depend on him. Any other uh, thoughts here before we wrap up? So, I'll just end with a question. So, if I were to, to ask you, what does worship in all of life look like? What would you say? Kind of an open-ended question, I know. Beck? That's a, that's a great summary. <laughs> and then go and do the right thing. And the Bible is filled with all the examples, whether it's talking about the least of these or, or God hating injustice. But he wants, I think he wants us to roll up our sleeves and look at what's out there and care about the things that he cares about. Because he cares about a whole lot more than just what's in our sphere. But also, there's, there are a couple of things to consider when we're doing this. Um, so, I'll, I'll read through uh, one verse that I think is uh, a couple of them that are uh, particularly apropos, I guess. This, there's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. Uh, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I think that that summarizes the notion of 
of worship, the, the rejoicing that is uh, a, a critical aspect of when we come into God's presence. We rejoice that, that we have salvation in Christ. But he says, he says in here in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. So rejoicing, being in prayer, especially when it's hard to rejoice. Sometimes it's hard to rejoice. And we're, we're forced to pray. And then give thanks in all circumstances. Look at it, you look at a passage like that, and that's, you know, how do I do that? And again, this sort of brings us around full circle to how do you do that? In, in, in God's spirit, by God's Holy Spirit, that's how you do it. Because you need to be transformed. You need to be turned into something that you're not. <clears throat> Excuse me, in order to do that. Because the natural man who's conformed to the image of this world can't do that. But by God's grace, all of us can. And then that ends up transitioning into having, that's, that is how we can affect the culture, how we can affect the political situation, how we can affect the arts and sciences. If we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we love our neighbor as ourselves, and then we're able to actually live out uh, a, a life of rejoicing in all things, of praying in all things, and giving thanks in, in all of our circumstances. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's, that is uh, the verse that I was going to close in. So uh, ultimately what our lives should look like, look like is righteousness, peace, and joy. Yep. Through, the Holy Spirit. through the Holy Spirit. And only through the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way your word speaks into our lives. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would be with us as, uh, as we consider what it means to worship in all of life, that you would give us uh, a, a love that... Uh, transcends what in our flesh we believe is humanly possible, uh, that we would have an unspeakable joy in our salvation, that you would work in us to conform us to Christ's image, and that we would have uh, a love for one another, a love for those who will know you, that we might uh, proclaim your gospel to those who don't know you. And ultimately, we ask that you would equip us uh, to reflect your glory to a culture and a world that needs to see it and experience it and can only find its fulfillment through you. We ask for your blessing upon the worship service ahead, uh, that we would truly see your face and see your glory 
as uh, we examine our own helplessness and that we would rejoice in the salvation that you offer through Christ's shed blood. Uh, for we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>